You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The Inductive Origins of Darwin's Origin by James Lennox. I want to give you a brief introduction to Darwin's life before he went on HMS Beagle, uh, but I don't want to dwell too much on that. I'll tell you that I've been interested in scientific discovery since I was a little boy, and uh, as I started to study philosophy, um, I realized that contemporary philosophy treated the discovery process as some kind of strange mystery that couldn't be understood. And that was partly having to do with a grave um, skepticism about the nature of induction that has uh, haunted philosophy for the last couple of hundred years. Um, and I decided the best way to get a handle on what was going on was to study carefully how certain of the great scientists in the history of science actually went about making their discoveries. And Charles Darwin is a perfect example for this because he's both a nightmare and a dream for the historian of science. He saved every piece of paper he jotted down any idea on throughout his entire life. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about that at the end when I want to encourage all of you to um, take up the study of Darwin's uh, discovery process. All right, one minute on Darwin pre-Beagle before we take a trip with him around the world, both a physical and a spiritual trip. Uh, he was born in February 12, 1809, the same day as Abraham Lincoln, died in 1882. He had two quite well-known grandparents. Erasmus Darwin was actually a speculator about the evolutionary origins of life on Earth uh, two generations before Charles Darwin. Josiah Wedgwood, of course, famous for being the first person to mass produce high-quality China that could be bought by the middle class, the burgeoning industrial middle class in England at the time. Um, Erasmus wrote a book called Zoonomia, The Laws of Life, which was Darwin, a, a, a book that Darwin read himself when he was still a teenager in his home library. His father and mother were related to those two grandparents, Robert Darwin, uh, son of Erasmus, and Susanna Wedgwood, uh, daughter of uh, Josiah Wedgwood. He was the fifth of six children, who grew up in Shropshire near the Welsh border. And uh, he left uh, hopeful, his father was hopeful he would become a doctor like his father and his grandfather before him. Um, he decided very early on that medicine was not for him. He and his brother Erasmus went to the University of Edinburgh, the best medical school in Great Britain at the time, to study medicine. He was there for two years, but decided after the first year that's not what he was going to do with the rest of his life. Uh, at that point, uh, his father decided to send him to Cambridge University for an ordinary undergraduate degree, where he was until 1831. He was mentored there by the professor of botany, uh, uh, John Henslow. All right. I want to start this talk by having us look at the first two sentences of On the Origin of Species. On board HMS Beagle, as naturalist, I was much struck 
with certain facts in the distribution of inhabitants of South America and in the geological relations of present to past inhabitants of that continent. These facts seem to me to throw some light on the origin of species, that mystery of mystery as it has been called by one of our greatest philosophers. Remember those words. We're going to come back to them at the end of the talk. But I want you to notice two things. First of all, he doesn't tell us who that greatest of philosophers is. Um, we'll find out pretty soon. Um, but I also want you to notice the similarities and differences between what he says here and what he says in a passage in his autobiography, which he writes in 1876, primarily just for his own family, but his uh, his son decided to publish a redacted version of it, so we actually had it from 1809 on. And here's the passage. And what I want you to focus on here is that he says he's following the example of Lyle, that's Charles Lyle, in geology. And the other thing I want you to notice is that he says he was collecting all the facts which bore in any way, and notice how specific this is, on variation in animals and plants under domestication and in nature. And he says he worked on true Baconian principles, that is the principles of Francis Bacon. Without any theory, I collected facts on a wholesale scale, more especially with respect to domesticated productions, that is productions above domestic animals and plants, by printed inquiries, he printed a, a question sheet of 21 questions, which he published in breeders' journals and sent to all of the breeders that he knew. Um, and he started reading volumes of breeder manuals about how to breed animals and plants. And at the end, he says, I soon perceived that selection was the keystone of man's success in making useful races of plants and animals. But how this could apply to organisms in nature, in a state of nature, remained a mystery to me. Indeed, it did for many years. All right. Now we're going to go to the critical year for Charles Darwin's life that will change his life uh, irrevocably, the, the year 1831. He graduates from Cambridge. He's 22 years of age. And as he graduates, his mentor, John Henslow, is asked by the Admiralty to recommend somebody to accompany uh, Robert Fitzroy, the commander of the HMS Beagle, on a trip around the world on the Beagle as gentleman naturalist, somebody to accompany him as a, as a gentleman, but also somebody to be a naturalist on board the ship. And Henslow recommends Charles Darwin. Boat set sail in December of 1831. In the same year, two books are published that will have a profound impact on Charles Darwin's way of thinking and on his life. The first is a book by John Henslow, and I'll talk about him in a moment, called A Preliminary Discourse on the Study of Natural Philosophy. It's published just a few months before Darwin graduates. 
The other is Charles Dahlgren's uh, Principles of Geology, which were published over three years uh, between 1831 and 1833. Darwin is about to begin on both a physical journey around the world and a spiritual journey, a quest to answer the mystery of mysteries that he mentions at the beginning of the origin. All right, let's just a brief introduction to these two people that had such a profound influence on Darwin's life. Charles Lyell, he's author of The Principles of Geology, the book that is sort of known as the founding document in modern geological science. Uh, it defends for the first time a thoroughgoing uniformitarian uh, approach to geology, which I'll explain later. What he's trying to do by doing that is defend a rigorously inductive approach to the historical sciences. And this is a real problem for the historical sciences. You're talking about things that happened millions of years ago. How do you do that with a properly inductive method? Lyle figures that out, and he's trying to convince the rest of the discipline to follow him. Darwin is given volume one before he leaves and he takes it with him on the Beagle, and very quickly becomes a convert to Lyell's way of thinking in geology. Volume two, he receives in Montevideo, in South America, and volume three in the Falkland Islands. And remember, this is before there was FedEx or UPS, folks. I mean, somehow or other, his sister managed to get volumes two and three to him very shortly after they were published. Now, the second volume of that book is a first of all presents in a very fair and detailed way the ideas of Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, another evolutionist in the early 19th century. And then Lyle spends four chapters tearing Lamarck's ideas apart and refuting them. So Darwin is already aware of evolutionary ideas both from his grandfather and from Lamarck, and he's now aware of exactly how difficult it's going to be to defend those points of view. The other person, John Herschel, I want to say a little bit about him. He's the author of this book that I mentioned, A Preliminary Discourse on the Study of Natural Philosophy. Uh, he's a brilliant contributor to many different areas of science. Uh, he's considered the, basically the dean of the natural sciences in the 19th, early 19th century. He's a member of what, uh, in the book by the same name, Laura Snyder refers to as the Philosophical Breakfast Club. Other members included William Hewell and uh, Charles Babbage. And they were called that because every Sunday they would get together, drink a little wine, eat a little brunch, and read Francis Bacon and study him carefully. And they quickly decided they were going to revolutionize science in the 19th century and fulfill Bacon's dream of connecting theoretical science to the practical needs of mankind. That was their goal. That was their explicit goal from the time they were in college. And they succeeded. All right, so Darwin is reading both of these books as he departs on the Beagle Voyage. And they are having a profound influence on him, as we'll see. Now, I need to take a step back and provide a little bit of context for the debate we're going to see going on in the natural sciences over the rest of this talk. 
It's a debate over what we should do in the aftermath of Galileo's trial. If we want to pursue natural science, but we are, as almost all of the people in the scientific revolution were, devout Christians. Is there a way to make an accommodation between uh, revealed scripture and the unfettered pursuit of scientific truth? Now, a common approach in Great Britain, but not just there, is what comes to be known as natural theology. And you can see a little bit of the traces of that in contemporary uh, uh, creation science, or as, as it's sometimes called. The idea is that God's plan is instituted not by some miraculous events that occur occasionally. What God does is, in fact, implant laws of nature into his creation. And then everything unfolds according to those natural laws. So to discover those natural laws, and the language is sometimes used intermediate causes, because God's the first cause, these are the intermediate causes, um, is actually to learn about God's plan. So to study the natural world and learn more and more and more about the laws that govern natural events is a perfectly pious thing to do. This way of thinking is rooted in two naturalists in the 17th century, John Ray and Robert Boyle, often referred to as the father of modern chemistry, both devout Christians. And Darwin learns about this while he's an undergraduate at Cambridge because he is forced to study, but he actually enjoys studying it, um, uh, William Paley's natural theology. And uh, he recounts in his autobiography that he was quite taken by the structure of the argument, how tight the argument was. And John Herschel is referencing this issue about how to accommodate faith and reason right at the beginning of this book that had a profound influence on Darwin, this preliminary discourse. Here's what he says. Nothing can be more unfounded than the objection against the study of natural philosophy, and indeed against all science, that it leads students to doubt the immortality of the soul and to scoff at revealed religion. Its natural effect, we may confidently assert, on every well-constituted mind is and must be the direct contrary. So he's basically saying, no, the, the proper effect on a properly trained mind of the advances in modern science is to make them believe more and more in the science that's revealed in scripture. Well, we'll see. Um, I won't go through this quote just to save a little time. Now, I mentioned it's not just in England that we find this approach. Carl Linnaeus, famous for uh, inventing the modern nomenclature that we use in classification and even some of the methods of classification that are still in use, wrote a book called The System of Nature, Systema Naturae. But I want you to see what the subtitle of this work is. The Earth's creation is the glory of God as seen from the works of nature by man alone. So the Earth's creation is the glory of God. 
Only man has been given reason so that he can have this revealed to him by studying the natural world. That's, that's the thought. That's the thought pattern. But Linnaeus is starting something that will eventually undermine this root of accommodation of faith and reason. Because he's training students to be naturalists on these voyages of discovery that are going from Europe all over the world. And in fact, two of his students were on Captain Cook's two voyages to the Pacific uh, Islands. And over the period from the 17th to the 19th century, dozens and dozens of these voyages have naturalists on board gathering up plant, information about plants, animals, geology, mineralogy, uh, and bringing them back to Europe. This should be great from a natural theological point of view. We're just learning more and more and more about the natural world and the laws that govern it. Now, Darwin has copies of all of these books. HMS Beagle is a very late comer to this, this approach. Um, there are already dozens of voyages that have gone out, and all of the naturalists have kept narratives and kept records of what they've found. Darwin had all of those books on the Beagle voyage. In fact, the library on the Beagle was incredible. He only had a six-by-six six room to work in, and he had over 400 volumes in that room, if you can imagine that. All right. Um, unfortunately for natural theologians, what these people discovered began to undermine their hope for accommodation. Why so? Well, first of all, those voyages of discovery in uh, their information gathering about animals and plants revealed that there were a lot of strange and unexpected animals and plants in the new regions of the world that were visited that were nothing like those that were supposedly created, according to the book of Genesis, in one place. It's hard to imagine how these other animals could have gotten there uh, and how they could be so different from the animals that Europeans were already familiar with. And there were also patterns of the way animals and plants were distributed around the world that didn't make very much sense. They were at least mysterious to people and not what people were expecting at all. Also, in the middle of the 17th century, people finally become convinced that fossils must be the remains of long dead animals and plants. And so fossil gathering takes on huge steam at the end of the 17th century. And by the end of the 18th century, and by the time Darwin is going to college, there's been massive worldwide fossil collection that's becoming more and more and more systematic. And people are understanding more and more about how fossils are ordered in the geological column and how they're related to one another. And one of the things they're finding is that as you go through that fossil record, you find that there's a constant pattern of extinction and creation of new species. So there wasn't one time when species were created. There wasn't even one or two or three times when species were created. In fact, they seem to be constantly being created throughout Earth's history. This was a huge surprise to everybody. Nobody expected that. Moreover, 
the patterns in the way fossils were distributed around the world uh, looked like they were somehow linked to the patterns in the way contemporary animals and plants were distributed around the world. So what does that mean? Well, that means if you're going to have this accommodation of faith and reason that people have been hoping for, um, you'll have to find natural laws for the regular, constant production and extinction of species throughout the Earth's history. So uh, God must have natural laws that work that way to constantly create and then extinguish species. And why would he do that? All right, these problems absolutely permeate Charles Darwin's education, and they're absolutely on his mind constantly while he's on the Beagle Voyage. And there, it's really important to understand his thinking at this point in time, because he has to shake himself from that way of viewing the world. All right. Uh, this is the route of the HMS Beagle. Um, I like this map in particular compared to a lot of them because it actually tells you all of the different places where the Beagle stopped. And um, what you should know about Darwin is he often got off in one location and then walked for weeks or months even overland and met the Beagle at the next location. He actually didn't like sailing very much. He got seasick a lot. And he looked for opportunities to get off the Beagle and actually do a lot of geological and zoological research uh, on land. Uh, that yellow arrow I want you to focus on because that's the point where Darwin's physical voyage on the Beagle around the world and his spiritual voyage um, to solve the mystery of mysteries, the origin of species, uh, collide. How so? That's the Cape of Good Hope, Cape Town, South Africa. He's there in June of 1836 on his way back to England. So if you think that it's the Galapagos Islands that are the crucial moment for Darwin, no. Darwin looks back at his visit to the Galapagos Islands in retrospect and says, oh man, how did I not see what was there to be seen? But it was not an aha moment for him. However, I think Cape Town, South Africa was. How so? Well, remember that Darwin received volume two of Lyle's Principles of Geology in 1832, while he was still on the east coast of South, South America. He's been reading it for years at this point. And what's the topic of that volume of Lyle's? Well, here it is. Changes now in progress in the animate creation, that is, changes now in progress among the species of plants and animals around us, and the vicissitudes to which these species are subject. What kinds of forces are acting on species from day to day as we look at them, as we study them? Um, <clears throat> whether there be proofs of the successive extermination, extinction, of species in the ordinary course of nature, and whether there be any reason for conjecturing that new animals and plants are created from time to time to supply their place. Now, you'll notice the vaguely creationist language here, right? He's talking about species being created from time to time, and um, he's, he's talking about them supplying the place of the ones that have gone extinct. But in chapter 11 of volume two, 
he raises a very important question and says it's a proper question for natural science to pursue. What is it? Is it possible that new species can be called into being from time to time, and yet that such an astonishing a phenomenon can escape our notice? He's saying, you know, if it's ongoing part of the natural world, shouldn't we be seeing this happening around us all the time? But we don't. We don't see new species popping into existence all over the place. It seems, everything seems to be quite stable. <clears throat> okay, so then he asks, what evidence should we expect of the first appearance of new animals and plants? If we think of this as, notice the last line, a regular part of the economy of nature. Okay. Lyle is raising this question as something for people to start searching for an answer to. In 1836, three months before Darwin gets to Cape Town in South Africa, Herschel is reading the third edition of Principles of Geology, and he writes a letter to Lyle. It's a long letter, a lot of detailed criticism of the geology in it, but there's one part of the letter that praises Lyle to the stars. For what? Um, for raising and adding dignity to a subject already grand. What is the subject? I allude to that mystery of mysteries, the replacement of extinct species by others. Remember that first two sentences of Darwin's On the Origin of Species? You now know who the great philosopher was who raised this question of the mystery of mysteries, the origin of species. Here he is. And he says, I cannot but think it's an inadequate conception of the creator to assume it as granted that his combinations are exhausted upon any one of the theaters of their former exercise. Now, that's very wordy and verbose. But what he's saying is, it's an inadequate conception of the creator to think of him as miraculously creating species at one time in one place. Much better, he says, um, to think that he operates through a series of intermediate causes, and that in consequence, the origin of fresh species, hmm, what's Darwin's book named on the origin of species, is that right? That the origination of fresh species, could it ever come under our cognizance, would be found to be a natural, not a miraculous process. To be something that's due to natural laws, not due to miraculous interventions by God. That's still the accommodation. But he's trying to fine tune the accommodation. So if somebody comes up with a solution to the species problem and figures out how new species are originated, it will still fit in with this accommodation of faith and reason somehow. Now, this letter is sent from Cape Town to Lyle. Why? What's Herschel doing in Cape Town? His father, William Herschel, had done a star map of the Northern Hemisphere, and John decided he was going to go to the Southern Hemisphere and do a star map of the skies from the Southern Hemisphere to complete the project that his father had started. And that's why he was in Cape Town, South Africa. That's where he wrote this letter, and that's where he sent it from. And it was written just a few months before Charles Darwin arrives at so there he is in June in 1836 in Cape Town. 
And in his diary that he's keeping while he's on the Beagle, he writes the following words. I dined out several days with Mr. McClear, the astronomer, with Colonel Bell, and with Sir J. Herschel. This last was the most memorable event which for a long period I have had the good fortune to enjoy. Now remember, he's already told all of his friends that this book of Herschel's preliminary discourse on the study of natural philosophy was a profound influence on his decision to become a naturalist, to go into natural science as a career. That's written in June 15, 1836. Why is Darwin so excited? Uh, this is from his biography, autobiography, written in 1876. And that's the written page uh, over on your right there. And the top few sentences, say, few words say, this work, he's first talking about Alexander Humboldt's personal narrative, which also had a huge impact on his desire to become a naturalist and Sir J. Herschel's introduction to the study of natural philosophy stirred up in me a burning zeal to add even the most humble contribution to the noble structure of natural science. No one or a dozen other books influenced me nearly so much. This is a philosophical hero of Darwin's, and lo and behold, in Cape Town, South Africa, he has dinner with him twice. And the evidence that they had uh, a long discussion about Lyle's principles of geology is very, very compelling. Um, the first few lines up there where the arrow is pointing correspond to uh, what I've transcribed here. All right, so what's going on in that principles, uh, of, uh, sorry, preliminary discourse? In chapter six of Herschel's preliminary discourse, He's talking about the first stage of induction. And here's what he says, and he refers to Newton as the background to his thinking here. We find ourselves with a continually increasing stock of such antecedent phenomena or causes that are competent under different modifications, that is, under different kinds of physical settings, uh, to the production of a great multitude of effects besides those which originally led to our knowledge of them. And he says, uh, Isaac Newton, it's in the optics, in fact, calls these vera causa. And uh, all he says after that is these have a real existence in nature. But if you read the whole passage, it's much more than that. Not only do you have to establish that the cause that you're studying has a real existence in nature, either just by observation or by experimental manipulation. Um, but you also have to show that it can account for the full range of phenomena that you're studying, and not just the one ones that you've actually observed. Uh, and it has to be confirmed to be productive of any similar phenomena that you might observe in the future or any evidence you have that similar phenomena have occurred in the past. So uh, it's a fairly rigorous criterion that he is asking scientists to fulfill when they practice inductive science. Principles of geology follows this out, plan out very rigorously. Lyle, in volume one of the Principles of Geology, says, the immutable constancy of the laws of nature alone can enable us to reason from analogy by the strict rules of induction 
respecting the events of former ages, or by comparing events of former ages. So what he's saying is, for the historical sciences, this is not about predicting what's going to happen in the future. This is about studying causes that are in operation now and projecting those causes back into the past to explain any similar phenomena you find in the geological record from the past. And at this point in time, the study of what's happening to animals and plants in the past, through studying the fossil record primarily, is part of geology. Nowadays, we think of evolutionary biology as part of biology. Back then, any study of the history of the Earth in the ancient past was thought of as geology, and that included studying the animate kingdom. That's why volume two is all about whether the evolution of species is possible, and if not, how do new species originate, and how do they go extinct? All right. The historical significance on Darwin is, I think, pretty clear. I'm going to give you just a hint of the evidence. In a book called The Red Notebook, because it has a red cover, uh, Darwin opens this notebook immediately after the Beagle sails from Cape Town, South Africa. We know that because the pages are dated. Um, the early geological entries in that notebook show that Darwin had been talking to Herschel about the letter that Herschel sent to Lyle because he references a lot of the criticisms that Herschel makes of Lyle's book. So that means for sure during those dinners that Darwin and Herschel spent together, they talked about um, Lyle's, the, the letter to, Lyle's, uh, to Lyle about his book. Now, do we have direct evidence that they also discussed species origination? the problem of the origin of new species? No direct evidence, but some pretty good indirect evidence. Um, there's a passage in another notebook that he opened at the same time about the distribution of birds on islands around the world that uh, is very revealing. And it's the first time Darwin talks this way. First piece of paper we have where he talks this way. If there is the slightest foundation for these remarks, and these are remarks about the similarities of organisms on islands to species on the nearest mainland, such as Galapagos and South America, for example, the zoology of archipelagos will be well worth examining, so the zoology of islands like the Galapagos Islands. For such facts would undermine the stability of species. What's he mean by that? Well, what he's saying is that evidence from his field studies might challenge a key thesis of volume two of Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology. Lyell is in strict opposition to the idea that he attributes to Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, that there can be an indefinite modification of species. It's Lamarck's idea, and eventually it'll be Darwin's idea, that species that exist at one time can be indefinitely modified until they're so different that they become a different species from the parent population. 
Lyle is dead set against that, and most of his argument against Lamarck is gathering evidence that there are strict limits on how much species can vary. They can't go beyond that, so you can't possibly have them varying enough to become a different species. Not possible. Darwin is saying, well, the evidence I'm beginning to gather seems to throw some doubt on that idea. Because when you look at places like the Galapagos Islands, the boundaries between what counts as a variety of the same species and what counts as two different species seems to be a very blurry distinction. And in fact, we now know it really is. Things that people think of as distinct species on those islands, every now and then they, they interbreed. Um, not as often as you, know, you would expect, but every now and then. It, it is a very blurry distinction, in fact. So Darwin is saying it becomes very easy to imagine that closely allied species were once varieties of the same species. So that the different species on those islands uh, might have at one time just been varieties of a single species. Now, my ornithology friends tell me they're distinct species, but they're not nearly as different looking as the species of pigeons I've been breeding, and yet we know those are all related genealogically. So, hmm. so he's beginning to think it's becoming very easy to imagine that closely allied species were at one time actually just varieties of the same species that gradually changed enough that we now classify them as different species. And that, of course, is very much moving in the direction of Darwin's ultimate goal. OK. Nevertheless, Darwin has read those criticisms of Lyles, of Lamarck, and he accepts them, Lamarck's theory as far as he's concerned at this point, won't do. Darwin is back in England. It's the fall of 1836. Here's a description of where he sits intellectually at this point in time. He's, a commit, he's committed to Lyle's methodology in geology, the methodology of the uniformity of nature. Um, he's constrained then um, to explain events in the geological past, including extinction and origination of species, um, by means of causes of a kind and intensity that we can study now, causes that are now in operation so that we can use proper inductive methods to study them. He's beginning to have doubts about the stability of species. We now know that. And he almost certainly knows that his hero, in science, John Herschel has encouraged people to start taking this subject of the origin of species as a proper subject to be studied by natural science and to be studied by proper inductive scientific methods. All right, so what has he learned while on the Beagle? Well, I've told you what he's learned from Lyle and Herschel, and that gives him his lifetime goal to solve the problem, the mystery of mysteries, uh, the origin of species, and to do so by properly inductive methods. And here are some of the great facts, as Darwin calls them. Uh, we would call them abstractions from abstractions, very, very large 
detailed generalizations. There are biogeographically distinct regions around the globe. These regional differences have nothing to do with adaptations. That is, the fact that all the organisms in Australia are marsupial isn't because Australia is a particularly wonderful place for marsupials to live. The regional differences then aren't adaptational differences. The world's fossils are also biogeographically bio bio distinct. In South America, the fossils that you find are related to current South American animals. And the closer you get to the surface, the more they look like the contemporary animals of South America. Same with Australia, same with New Zealand, same with Africa. The island populations, such as those in the Galapagos or the Cape Verde, and we'll talk about the comparison between those in a moment, um, have unique species. They're not the same species as on the mainland, but they appear to be variants of species on the nearest mainland. And likewise, species that are distinct species, but on separate sides of a single mountain range, appear to be related in some way or other. So all of these general truths, Darwin says, shed light on or point to uh, all of these organisms in these different regions being genealogically related to one another. But that's the problem. How can that be? It can't be if species have strict bounds of variation that are defined at their creation, beyond which they can't change. All right, so very quickly, after he um, gets back, he has a very busy life for the next uh, eight years. Um, he takes up residency eventually in London to oversee the cataloging and publishing of the Beagle research. He's named a fellow of many different scientific societies for his work. He publishes a number of books related to the Beagle voyage, as you can see. Um, and he proposes to his cousin, Emma Wedgwood. Uh, one of her brothers has already married one of Charles Darwin's sisters, as a matter of fact. This is a very intermarried pair of families, which Darwin worries about once he discovers that intermarriage is not always a good thing. Okay, so he marries Emma in 1839. They eventually have eight children. Um, and uh, eventually, after the work on these London projects is done, they move to uh, Down House. Uh, that's a picture of it that I took when I was there many years ago um, in 1842. And he's there until he dies in 1882. And he doesn't go anywhere else very often. Every now and travels into London for a dinner. Uh, more often, he goes to places that provide uh, water treatments for illnesses, which he's, he's a bit of a hypochondriac for the rest of his life. But there's an inner life that nobody knows about except Darwin, and eventually one or two very close confidants, very close friends, who he thinks are sympathetic to his ways of thinking. He opens a series of notebooks, which we've already seen mentioned once, in 1837. Um, private notebooks on the species question. Um, there are known as notebooks B through E, because notebook A is devoted to strictly uh, geological questions, not questions about species. 
He starts by examining carefully his grandfather's views in zoonomia and Lamarck's views in the philosophy zoologique um, that are evolutionary views to see whether they work. And he very quickly decides, no, they don't work. Um, one problem among many that he encounters in looking at their ideas is both of them think that organisms just naturally adapt, that the environment causes them to adapt to environmental changes. And Darwin thinks, well, if that's what's happening, then why is there all this extinction? If animals can just naturally, every time there's an environmental change, they just change to go along with it, um, organisms would change, but there wouldn't be so much extinction. There wouldn't be so much elimination of species that we see in the fossil record. So he starts worrying about how to test the relationship between the variations in animal populations and the environment that those organisms live in. And to help with that, he turns to animal and plant breeders, and he even becomes a pigeon breeder and orchid breeder himself in order to get a first-hand observational awareness of what's going on. And what does he find out by this exploration? which is very systematic. He finds out that breeders can't induce, no matter how they try, and no matter how much they want to, they can't induce the variations that they would like the animals to show. A sheep breeder would love to be able to just induce sheep to have better wool. He can't do it. And yet they keep creating better and better breeds. How do they do it? How do they pull it off? Well. What Darwin discovers is they use the language of picking or selecting. They select males and females that have just the traits they want, and they only allow those to interbreed. And all the offspring in the next generation will be carrying those traits that they want in their population. So what that means is they have no control over the variations that pop up all the time but they do have control over the mating in the populations, and that allows them to create more and more and more distinct breeds. I don't know if any of you have ever looked at all the different breeds of pigeons that breeder pigeons have, have created, but it's quite phenomenal. I mean, it's bizarre, actually, is what it is. But there's a problem. This tells you that you can create by slowly gathering up variations and selecting which animals pass on those traits to the next generation, um, you can get very distinct breeds. And maybe if that kept up forever and ever and ever, you'd get distinct species. But the problem is, there's no breeder in nature unless you decide, oh, that's how God does it. God's a great breeder that decides which organisms get to breed and which ones don't. All right, so that's the problem that Darwin is now facing when he gets to notebook D. He's got all of these questions building up. Natural laws are needed that could explain regular extinction throughout Earth's history, the regular origination of new species throughout Earth's history, patterns of similarities and differences that we see in the present and extinct species around the world, and related patterns of similarities and differences in uh, the fossil records of species around the world. And a recurrent theme at this point in Darwin's thinking is 
it's more respectful of the creator to assume he creates by natural laws. So what I should be looking for are natural laws that govern this process of the natural production of extinction and origination of species. And we have pretty solid evidence that as of the time he published On the Origin of Species, it was still his hope that he would be contributing to this accommodation. The indirect evidence is pretty obvious. This is the cover of the first edition of On the Origin of Species, and you'll notice on the frontispage there are two quotes. One from William Hewell from his Bridgewater Treatise. The Bridgewater Treatises were treatises in natural theology. Um, I'll just read it, but there's a quote from Bacon, Francis Bacon, that has a very similar message. Um, Bacon wrote the Novum Organum, the, the new organon. Uh, Hewell wrote a book called Novum Organum Renovatum, the renovated Novum Organum. Remember, he was one of those philosophical breakfast club guys that um, read Bacon over Sunday breakfast. Here's what Hewell says. With regard to the material world, he's still holding out hope that for the immortal spiritual soul, maybe there's another story to tell. We can at least go so far as this. We can perceive that events are brought about not by insulated impositions of divine power exerted in each particular case, but by the establishment of general laws. Now, if Darwin is putting that on the frontispiece page of his book, um, he could be doing one of two things. He could be kind of massaging his readers into thinking that that's the way he's thinking, but I've read a lot of Darwin. That is not the way Darwin works. Um, he's polite, but he's not up to subterfuge. However, we have direct evidence because nine pages of his autobiography are devoted to telling the tale of his shift from a fairly orthodox Church of England believer to uh, not really an atheist. He's still holding out uh, a hope for an argument of the, uh, that, that there's actual some explanation for how ordered the natural world is. Um, but he's certainly almost to atheism, as was his grandfather, by the way. Um, but he says at the time he wrote The Origin, he still was a believer in this hope that the natural laws he was discovering and presenting to the world in On the Origin of Species would be um, uh, uh, part of the accommodation of revealed religion and natural science. Why did he give up on that? We're going to find out. Just to show you, though, that this is part of his thinking, this is a private notebook. He's not sharing this with anybody. He's talking about the extinction of quadrupeds in South America. He says it's a difficult problem on any theory, without, and without here means unless, God is supposed to create and destroy without rule, i.e. without laws. But what does he in this world without rule, without using natural laws? And then he goes on to talk about the destruction of great mammals over the whole world, shows that there is some law that's governing this process. Um, as I say, that's something that he's 
not sharing with anybody, that's himself worrying about this problem and talking about how there must be some law that uh, is instituted to cause this process. And this is the kind of thing he's talking about. This is one of the fossils that he discovered in South America. It's related to the contemporary llamas and guanacos that you find in South America, but uh, much, much larger. And, and there are many differences between the skeleton and the organisms that were um, there when Darwin visited. Now, some evidence that Darwin um, didn't actually know about Herschel's views on this subject until after he got back to England, that whatever they talked about in uh, South, Amer South Africa, uh, Herschel didn't show him the letter that he sent to Lyle. Because that letter, weirdly, gets published as an appendix to Charles Babbage's Ninth Bridgewater Treatise, a fragment to the second edition. And that's Babbage. And Darwin cites this in the last of his species notebooks, after he's got a theory of, to explain the origination of new species. And what does he say? Babbage, second edition, page 226. Herschel calls the appearance of new species the mystery of mysteries and has grand passage upon the problem. Hurrah! Why the hurrah? Because he's realized Herschel is endorsing his views about finding a natural law that governs the introduction of new species into the world. He's realizing that what he's doing is something that Herschel ought to be in favor of and endorse. All right. Now, let's look at what happens in the origin once he's got a theory and how he talks about the great facts that gave him, pointed him towards his theory and gave him um, the light that would uh, point him in the direction of the kind of theory that he wanted to come up with. Here's one. Those are all uh, birds on the Galapagos Islands. And here's what Darwin says about them in the origin. Here's a most important and striking fact. The inhabitants of islands is their affinity to those nearest mainland without being actually the same species. On the Galapagos, there are 26 land birds, and 25 of these are distinct species. And on the standard view, they're supposed to have been created there. Yet the close affinity of most of these birds to the American species in every character, in their habits, in gestures, tone of voice, was manifest. So it is with the other animals and with nearly all the plants. The naturalist, looking at the inhabitants of these volcanic islands, distant several hundred miles from the continent, yet feels that he is standing on American land. Why should this be so? That's exactly the question that he began asking himself in 1837. And what he's doing here is trying to create in his reader the same mindset and the same questions and worries that he had when he started thinking about this problem. He's asking his readers to take the same voyage along with him. How am I doing for time? Great. All right, here's another 
example of the same kind. On the other hand, he says, this is in the same chapter, there is a considerable degree of resemblance in the volcanic nature of the soil, in the climate, the height, and the size of the islands between the Galapagos, which are off the west coast of South America, and the Cape Verde Islands, which are off the west coast of Africa. But what an entire and absolute difference in their inhabitants. The inhabitants of the Cape Verde Islands are related to those of Africa, like those of the Galapagos to America. And here's what he's talking about. If you look at the layout of these two islands, these are the Cape Verdes over here, these are the Galapagos Islands here, um, and if you look at where they are in terms of latitude, they're both close to the equator. The islands are all volcanic. They're all about the same age. Uh, they even, you know, the layout of the islands is very, very similar. And Darwin has been to both of them, and he's saying they have exactly the same climates, and, you know, it, it, the different islands are different in exactly the same ways, and yet the animals on them are totally different. Why would that be? Well, we'll find out what his answer is in a minute. I believe this grand fact, and he tends to call these very, very abstract generalizations great facts or grand facts, can receive no sort of explanation on the ordinary view of independent creation. You would just have to say, huh, it's a mystery. God works in mysterious ways, but that's about the best you could do. Whereas on the view here maintained, it's obvious that the Galapagos Islands would be likely to receive colonists, whether by occasional means of transport or by formerly continuous land, that is a land bridge between the continent and the islands, from America, and the Cape de Verde Islands from Africa, and that such colonists would be liable to modification. But the principle of inheritance would betray where they had come from. The animals that come from Africa will have traits that betray their origins in Africa. Those that come from South America will betray their origins in South America. Natural selection can't just invent new perfect adaptations to the new environment. It's working with variations that are already there in the population and selecting those that are giving the organism a slight advantage over other organisms. All right, so the new variations then are slight modifications of what's already present in the population. And what that means is the descendants on those islands will betray where they've come from. The ones that came from South America will look South Americans. The one that came from Africa will look African. And, to complete the story, the individuals with advantageous variations to the different climates on the different islands will tend or be more likely to survive and leave offspring in the next generation. And if that goes on indefinitely for many, many, many generations, there'll be enough differences between the populations on the different islands to count them as distinct species and different from the species on the mainland. Darwin refers to this mechanism as a deduction from Malthus. Uh, Malthus wrote 
principle of population. Darwin read it while he was working on his notebooks. And Malthus's view is that populations tend, if unchecked by any kind of force, to increase at a geometric rate. And his view was that the um, uh, things that support those populations can't increase at a geometric rate. And so the populations are going to be in competition for scarce resources as the population numbers increase. And it'll be the ones that have the most advantageous traits for taking advantage of those resources that will be most likely to survive and pass on their traits to their offspring. That's the way Darwin's theory tends to work in a very brief nutshell. And this is an example of Darwin's ability to form really, really grand integrations over all of the observations that he's made and all of the observations that he's read about. If we look to the islands off the American shore, however much they may differ in geological structure, the inhabitants, though they may be peculiar species, are essentially American. We may look back to past ages, by means of the fossil record, and we find American types then prevalent on the American continent. That is, the fossils there um, are related to the current animals there in the way the current animals on the islands off the coast are related to the organisms on the mainland. He says, we see in these facts some deep organic bond, and I love this line because it shows what a, what a huge integration he's making here, prevailing throughout space and time over the same areas of land and water and independent of their physical conditions. And he says, and I love this line, the naturalist must feel little curiosity who is not led to inquire what this great bond is. Why is it that these patterns in the fossil record and these patterns in the distribution of animals and plants around the world, why is it that they are related in this way? Why is it that these temporal relationships are related to these spatial relationships in the way they are? If you're not puzzled by that, he says, you lack real curiosity. And I should mention as an aside that when Henslow was recommending him to be the naturalist on the Beagle, he told uh, the person who he was recommending Darwin to, he's a young man of enlarged curiosity. And that's what you see in all of Darwin's writing. He's just constantly asking questions and puzzling, and often asking questions and puzzling about things that nobody else has asked questions about or puzzled about. Charles Lyell looked at many of the same facts that Darwin looked at, but he was held up by this devotion to the idea that species cannot change, that they are created with a fixed essence at creation and they cannot change. Darwin looked at the same facts and said, there's only one way to explain this, you have to give up that idea. All right, so these are the facts, the kinds of facts, the kinds of great facts or grand generalizations that Darwin thought shed light on that mystery of mysteries, on the origin of species. So he now has a theory, each feature of which, and this is crucial to his views about induction that he learned from Herschel and Lyell, every feature 
of his theoretical mechanism for producing new species can be observed now in operation. And that can answer the questions that he's asking. So here's what I mean. This is the causal model that he's talking about, right? You require new variations to appear in each generation of a population of animals and plants. We can study domestic breeding, and that provides us with evidence that those variations are undirected. They just appear, um, who knows why. Remember that Mendel hasn't written his paper until 1865, and nobody really pays any attention to it until the early 1900s. So Darwin doesn't have a view about genetics. He doesn't have a view about the causes of variation. But what he means by random variation, anyway, wouldn't change with that. Because he's not saying that there aren't actual causes of the variations. He thinks there are. He just doesn't think he knows what they are. What he means is they're not designed. Nobody designed them. Breeders can't make organisms have the variations they want. There may be causes, but it's not caused by design. It's not caused purposefully. And that's true of natural populations as much as it is of domestic populations. That same study of domestic breeding and breeding in the wild provides evidence on the patterns of inheritance. We can at least see that. And at this point in time, Darwin is reading people like Kohlreuter and Gertner who are writing these huge tomes on what happens when you uh, crossbreed uh, and hybridize and what happens when you, you keep breeding offspring from the same population through many generations, what kinds of variations appear in each generation, which ones disappear, and so on and so forth. He's studying all of that stuff. And he does see that there are patterns. He just doesn't know what the underlying causes of those patterns are. Now, the struggle for existence, which is critical to his theory, is something that's been well studied by many naturalists before Darwin. He doesn't have to convince anybody that organisms are constantly struggling for survival in the wild. People have studied that for hundreds of years, and it's, well known, it's a well-known, well-established fact. He then reads Malthus, and Malthus establishes, uh, and provides lots of empirical evidence, by the way, for the tendency of populations to increase at a geometric rate if left unchecked by disease or by famine or by whatever. The implication of all of this is that the organisms that are most fit to succeed in the struggle for existence in a particular environment are most likely to survive and pass on their traits. And if that goes on in a continually changing environment over many, many, many generations, there should be indefinite modification of species, the kind of thing that Lamarck claimed happened but didn't have good evidence for. All right, so if we turn back, as I said we would, to that passage at the beginning of On the Origin of Species, we now know what he's talking about. I was much struck with certain facts in the distribution of the inhabitants of South America and in the geological relation of present to past inhabitants. He's referring to the fossil record there. These facts seem to me to throw some light on the origin of species, that mystery of mysteries. So remember that what he's saying here is that those facts by themselves made him think 
gave rise to the idea that all the animals in and around South America are genealogically related to one another. The problem he had to solve to come up with his theory was how that could possibly have happened. But the evidence of these facts pointed him in that direction. The problem that he then had to solve, of course, was how to account for that, how to explain it. But that genealogical relationship, he thought, was already clear from these facts that he was gathering. And here's what he says, and this is an accurate portrayal of what happened. In 1837, he returned home, and he thought he should um, uh, accumulate and reflect on all sorts of facts which could possibly have a bearing on this problem. So he's got a problem to solve, and he's now gathering facts in order to help him answer the questions and solve the problems that he's worried about. And the 1844 sketch is fascinating. I published a paper about it a couple, couple of years ago now, um, where you see him struggling with problems that it takes him the next 10 or 15 years to overcome. The problems are overcome by the time he publishes The Origin. So reading this 1844 draft is a fascinating exercise in seeing a man's creative mind at work. Now. This is kind of a coda, kind of a sad coda in a way. Darwin, of course, sends a gift copy of On the Origin of Species to his hero, John Herschel. And here's his letter to Herschel. He hopes Herschel still has an interest in the question of the origin of species. He knows he used to. Um, and he says he wants to pay tribute to Herschel because of the deep obligation he owes to his introduction to natural philosophy. And he says, scarcely anything in my life, and he says this to Herschel, has made so deep an impression on me. It made me wish to try to add my might to the accumulated store of natural knowledge. Indeed, he did, and not just a might, I would say. But sadly, Darwin's heroes, Lyle and Herschel, respond rather coolly to Darwin's theory. Darwin was designing this theory to make them happy. It was the kind of theory he thought they were begging for. And their problem is not with the natural origination of new species. That's fine, no problem there. They've, they've been asking for that. Somebody come up with a solution to that problem. The problem is that which species originate on Darwin's theory is a matter of chance. The fact that you and I are sitting in this room right now is a pure chance. I mean, if the right variations hadn't come along at the right times and the right places and so on, we wouldn't be here, something else would be here. Um, they want us to be, have some special relationship to God. And so what they do is, oh, by the way, Herschel refers to Darwin. Darwin hears about this secondhand. Herschel is too kind a man to say this directly to Darwin's face. But one of Darwin's friends says, uh, Herschel has called your theory the law of higgledy-piggledy. And what Herschel means by that is chance plays way too much of a role in Darwin's theory. God has to be designing things so that the glory of his creation, mankind, is at the end of the evolutionary process. 
So they urge Darwin, Asa Gray does, John Herschel does, Charles Lyell does, consider that the variations that come along are the product of divine law. Then it all works just fine. It's still part of God's plan that man is here to turn his faculty of reason onto the natural world and learn more about God's plan. But Darwin insists, no, random variation, variation that has no design behind it at all, is a critical part of the theory. If the variations had a divine plan behind them, you wouldn't need natural selection. And he has this argument that goes on for 10 years, and I've studied this debate very carefully and published about it, with Asa Gray, who is his great defender in America, but unfortunately Asa Gray is also a great defender of natural theology, and he keeps arguing with Darwin, there has to be design behind the variations. And Darwin says, you wouldn't need my theory if that's the way it worked. And he keeps pointing out to um, Asa Gray, think about my theory. The vast majority of organisms in the world struggle and die so that a few advantageous ones can survive. Your benevolent, omniscient God couldn't do better than that? Um, surely he could. So Darwin gradually gives up on his deist accommodation and becomes an agnostic. He never says he's an atheist, but he definitely describes himself using his friend T.H. Huxley's word, an agnostic, about. And he's certainly not a Christian. He has very nasty things to say about Christianity in, uh, in his autobiography. That was one of the reasons why Darwin's uh, uh, wife asked his son to redact a lot of passages from the autobiography before it was published. Um, she asked him to take out a lot of the nastier things Darwin said about Christianity. All right, I want to close with just a few words about Darwin's inductive method. I've already touched on it a few times, but I want to make some generalizations about it. Notice what Darwin has been doing and what we've been talking about. He's been moving from observing systematic similarities and differences location by location all around the world. And the fact that this was a worldwide voyage, I think, was really, really important. But while he's doing that, he's also reading any place that he hasn't been, he has other people's narratives of the natural history of all those places. And he's been reading all of them at the same time that he's been visiting all these other places and he's actively puzzling about them. And one of the things I want to stress about induction, it's very easy to describe it in a way that sounds rather passive. To me, induction is an active cognitive progress that's question-driven, curiosity-driven, puzzle-driven. And that starts when you're an infant. And unless the school system or parents beat it out of you, it continues to grow in children, and they become great scientists, like Darwin. He's also comparing the patterns of similarity and difference in all the different locations. So think about the comparison between the populations in the Cape Verde Islands and in the Galapagos Islands. He's also following the same steps in examining the fossil records 
from all these different places. And he's also reading very vociferously about this as well. And he's gradually isolating more and more abstract patterns, which he refers to as great facts or grand facts, um, like the one that I've mentioned here and talked about over and over again. And there's lots of other examples I could have used. What I tried to do to limit the time frame was just to trace one example all the way through, and that's what I've been doing. Then upon his return, he begins to systematically gather facts about a much more focused question that he now has. By the time he returns to England, he's pretty convinced on the view that species in a particular region of the world are genealogically related to one another, but he can't figure out how that could possibly work in the natural world. And that's what he starts focusing on when he returns to Great Britain. Now, a lot of people will say all theoretical inquiry in science is theory-driven, that people come up with a theory, who knows how, and then all of the inductive work they do is really just to confirm a theory that they've already come up with. Darwin denies that over and over and over again. He says he's gathering facts in order to answer a puzzle or a problem. That's what he's gathering facts for. So what I want to stress is that this is a question-guided inquiry, not a theory-guided inquiry. Darwin doesn't come up with a theory until the last notebook in the notebook series, and shortly after that, he's ready to start sketching out a plan for a book on the subject. So the theory comes late. The evidence gathering is in the interests of finding that theory. But it's very focused. It's not random fact gathering. This is very focused systematic. And the focus and system is driven by the kinds of questions and problems that are driving the inquiry that he's involved in. All right. Um, this is my Darwin bookshelf. Um, I wanted to show you this because I wanted to tell you when I started working on Darwin, there was no internet. In fact, there was not even a dream of an internet when I started working on Darwin. Um, but they did start publishing, thanks to the fabulous editorial talents of a, a very devoted group of people, Darwin's correspondence. So the top shelf there, and I'm now working on part of the bottom shelf, um, is the correspondence of Charles Darwin from the 1820s. I think they're up to about 1879 now, two or three years before he died. And you can see how much correspondence there is. And you probably all know this. science in the 18th and 19th century was done as much by letter writing back and forth to one another as it was by publishing in, in places. And the bottom row, the darker blue books, are the complete works of Charles Darwin. And I wanted to show you that because I wanted to show you that even had he not published On the Origin of Species, he would have been a very famous 19th century scientist. I think there is something like 29 volumes there, and they're all separate works on different topics. After The Origins published, he becomes a really serious botanist. And in his botany, you see him becoming a really talented experimental scientist. Um, the experimentation that he does on carnivorous plants and on the mechanisms that allow plants to climb and various are all just brilliant experimental work. But 
you're lucky because you belong in the age of the internet. And uh, all of this stuff is now online, and they're all open access. Uh, Darwin Online has online every word that Darwin ever wrote on any piece of paper that anybody has ever found, and all of his published works, and a whole slew of books about Darwin, and all of the publications of his books that have been translated into other languages. It's just an incredible source. I recommend that you go and take a look at it. And the other one I want to recommend is The Darwin Project, which now, sadly, I bought all those books, and now all that correspondence is online. Anybody can look at it. Oh, well. Uh, so I encourage you, go out and do your own Darwin research. It's a heck of a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Um, thanks for the great talk. Thank you. Uh, my question, you broke down uh, your view of Darwin's inductive approach to the origin of species, and you, uh, you, you kind of opened at the beginning saying that others who don't fully recognize the inductive approach have been confused about the scientific method or how Darwin came to his conclusions. What are some of the other ways in which people uh, attempt to explain his work and his progress um, if they're not fully recognizing an inductive approach? Right. Um, and in terms of however influential those people are in philosophy of science, have you seen any negative impact in how the progress of actual science has uh, uh, been pursued by other biologists post-Darwin if uh, you know, the, the bigger minds and philosophers in philosophy of science aren't recognizing um, his approach or explain it in a way that you think is accurate? Yeah, good. Um, on the first question, um, uh, the problem is that uh, in especially in the 20th century, uh, philosophers of science approach to induction was to um, view it as a way of confirming hypotheses. Um, probably many of you working in the sciences know about Bayesianism, um, but all through the 20th century, when you looked at people approaching uh, induction, it was usually uh, some form of probability theory or statistics. They were trying to make induction look sort of quasi-deductive, but given that induction can never give you certainty, it always had to be probabilistic or statistical. It could never be giving you actual certain knowledge. Um, and so part of that view was that both Popper in one way and Carl Hempel in another way were arguing that the subject of how we come up with theories and hypotheses is not a subject that philosophy of science should be concerned with. Maybe psychologists, but not philosophers of science. Um, philosophers of science looking at confirmation of theories um, are looking at deducing consequences from theoretical or hypothetical um, views, and then testing to see whether the things they deduce from their hypotheses or theories are actually confirmed by tests. Um, and so the idea that there's an inductive process that leads you to the theory or the hypothesis in the first place just wasn't really on the table in the 20th century. If you go back to the 19th century, though, people like William Hewell and John Herschel are students of Francis Bacon. They're taking the Newtonian-Baconian approach 
to science. And they are seeing theories arising by the inductive study of phenomena. And that's the view that Darwin absorbs from these people. That's the good impact that they have on him, is that they have that view that theories and hypotheses arise from study. Now, I will find both in philosophers of science now who have at least been really influenced by the history and philosophy of science revolution, the combination of the historical study of science and the philosophy of science, are beginning to talk about scientific discovery as a proper epistemology, properly subject for epistemology, a proper subject for philosophers to consider as a, as a, a subject in the theory of knowledge. That's pretty recent, but there's a lot of people taking that approach now. A lot of scientists will pay lip service to Popper or Hempel. I see that a lot. But when you actually look at their own methods, I, I think it's, um, it is lip service. I don't think, at least in the successful science, uh, I can give you lots of examples, but it would take a long time. But I'll just be dogmatic and say, in the historical examples in 20th century science I've looked at, um, they're following a pretty proper inductive method for the most part in coming up with their theories and hypotheses. Um, and uh, when they're talking about being Popperians and so on, um, it's really lip service rather than um, uh, reflected in their actual practice. Does that help, Kevin? Okay. Uh, thank you, this is fascinating. Um, I'm really intrigued by the idea of great facts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> In economics, there's a term stylized facts, which I think means this, basically the same thing. Uh, uh, I wonder, uh, but I'll, I'll get to it. Well, I've seen it used in a similar way. Okay. I'm just wondering if there's other examples uh, you can talk about either in biology or in other fields uh, where there are sets of great facts like this. Um, off the top of my head, that might be tough. What I wanted to say, um, in response to these stylized facts is that sometimes you'll see people talking about abstraction in a way that's radically different from what Darwin is talking about, um, uh, where you're sort of abstracting away from the detail and you know, creating models that are quote unquote unrealistic and so on. That's not what's going on with Darwin. Um, Darwin is integrating a huge body of facts and the great facts that he comes up with are integrations over all of these facts. It, it's not that he's trying to come up with some abstract formulation that um, uh, abstracts away from the reality of what's going on. I'll send you a paper. Okay, good. I find it interesting, yeah. So I'd, I'd like to ask about a, a, any possible uh, connections, applications of Darwinian evolution ideas to the objectivist, so to objectivist perspectives on human nature. So for a quick example, it's a tough one, right? For example, uh, uh, you don't have to limit yourself to these, but these are I've, ones I've thought about. Uh, the conceptual faculty and in relation to possible uh, evolutionary antecedents and volition, human volition in relation to evolutionary antecedents or precursors, but you can take other examples if you like. Right. Um, uh, Lee, I, um, 
let me limit myself to just Darwin on this topic. Uh, um, the descent of man, I'm afraid, is pointing in the other direction. In other words, what Darwin is concerned to do is deflate the view that human intellectual capacities are so radically different from other organisms that they couldn't, human beings couldn't possibly have evolved from other organisms. That's the view he's fighting. And so in The Descent of Man, um, what you get is Darwin constantly stressing that other animals have faculties that are similar to ours or analogous to ours. Um, and I think, I mean, just to uh, try to at least point in the direction of your actual question, um, I think that's still the approach that many people take in evolutionary biology when they talk about cognition. Um, I don't think it's the right approach. Um, I think we do have to take account of the fact that human beings um, are derived from uh, other primates that aren't human, and we have to understand that evolution. But there's also pretty clearly something going on in human cognition um, and volition that's radically different. And I don't think anybody's got a really convincing story to tell about that yet. Uh, if, if there is somebody that has a really convincing story to tell about it, I haven't read it. So. <laughs> um, but I think that's still work to be done. I guess that's my view. And Darwin certainly didn't point people in that direction because he was concerned to get over the idea that man was divinely created and to show that, no, man is a product of an evolutionary process. And in order to do that, he was really downplaying how distinct our cognitive faculties are from other organisms. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.